Let me just take the jacket. Octopus was weak. Call me Doctor Octopus. Rebellion. We're poison to Peter Parker and Spider-Man. We're Venom. Green Goblin doesn't take orders from insects. The Green Goblin swaps them into oblivion. It's a conspiracy, I tell you. They're all working together to raise my blood pressure. Tell me there's something better. Go ahead, try. Welcome back to another episode of the Spectacular Radio Podcast, powered by Spidey-Dude.com. I'm Zach Joyner, the webmaster, and as always, I am joined by the host of the show, Mr. Greg Mishansky. Hi, and also joining us once again is the man who had a killer robot comparing himself to Pinocchio years before Joss Whedon did it, Mr. Greg Wiseman. Hi. Okay, first of all, Greg, I would like to thank you on the success of your Kickstarter. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, I don't... You might, exactly. you might have them uh, describe the Kickstarter for those that don't know. Uh, well, we uh, I've written two novels, which I'm sure I've mentioned here before. One is called Reign of the Ghosts, and the other is called Spirits of Ash and Foam. They're the first two books in what I hope will be a nine-book series about the character Rain Cacique. Um, and uh, we have uh, we are working on an audio play based on the first novel. It's an unabridged, full cast, uh, 20 actors playing 30 roles, full musical score, sound effects, um, production, studio quality. We had recorded all the voices last uh, fall um, on my dime, but uh, I needed some help to do the post-production, which is music, editing, uh, mixing, sound effects, all that stuff. Uh, and so we launched a Kickstarter campaign uh, across the month of uh, April, basically, to uh, raise that money. And we uh, did fund, which is great. And uh, as soon as the money clears Kickstarter, which should happen in within the next week and a half, we'll get to work on the post-production for Rain of the Ghost Audio. I look forward to hearing it. And it's got a few spectacular Spider-Man voice actors in it, doesn't it? It does. Uh, Josh Keaton, obviously, the Spectacular Spider-Man himself is in it. So is uh, uh, Steve Bloom, Vanessa Marshall, who played uh, Green Goblin and Mary Jane Watson, respectively. Um, Lisa Gabrielli, who played Dr. Kafka, uh, is in it. Um, and a bunch of other great performers. Ed Asner, who played Uncle Ben. Um, Tom Adcox, who played uh, um, the Tinkerer, Jeff Bennett, who played Shocker, um, and uh, I'm probably even forgetting a few people who were in Spectacular Spider-Man, and then also got Marina Sirtis, Brent Spiner, uh, Jacob Vargas, uh, Eric Lopez, who was Molten Man, is uh, in it, um, and uh, a bunch of other great people. Um, I'm very psyched. We record all the voices. That all sounds terrific. Now we've got to edit the track and then record the music and it should be in good shape. Well, I can't wait to hear it. Early fall for uh, its release. Excellent. Sounds great. Okay, and uh, moving on into the episode, this episode introduces one of Spidey's other big bads. I mean, historically he has two or three, depending on if you count Venom, but it's usually, usually the Green Goblin and Dr. Octopus. How do you set about 
um, adapting Doc Ock into the show. It's a very classic Doc Ock. I was really happy to see that. Well, you know, we introduced uh, Otto Octavius in the very first episode as a sort of nebbishy um, scientist, and we've been building up his character, uh, sort of put upon um, employee of uh, Norman Osborn. Um, we got that idea from the Ultimate Spider-Man co- comic um, to make him an employee of Norman. In general, as usual, and I know we've talked about this before, we were trying to create a uh, universe for Spidey that was coherent and cohesive and not have um, all this random stuff created supervillains. So Oscorp becomes a source of a lot of our villains one way or the other. Um, and we established that uh, Dr. Octavius uh, uses these arms um, and we're, we clearly established how they work in this episode before it all goes to hell, in essence. And this was part of our Green Goblin arc. Um, and uh, so Goblin is part of the... Goblin actually sets out to assassinate Octavius, perceives him as a threat, and uh, instead winds up creating Dr. Octopus. As, in a very... Um, yeah, in a very spectacularly animated sequence, I might add. Yeah, it's pretty cool. You know, I mean, we have some good villain creation sequences in our show, I have to say. Um, and so this was pretty neat, you know. And for me, uh, you know, a huge part of it is Peter McNichol's amazing performance, both as the sort of nebbishy Dr. Octavius and as the megalomaniac Dr. Octopus. And, and I just love that moment um, where it just as, you know, all hell's breaking loose, and Octavius is uh, about to be, you know, irradiated by his own experiment, which uh, was sabotaged by Green Goblin. Um, he just says, "But I've been good." <laughs> you know, that made my favorite. Thing. That made me my favorite Ock line was, "I've been good," because there's so much depth to that particular line. Like, yeah, and it's really all Peter, you know, because Peter McNichol just is so good that he can take that simple line and put so much pain and so much hurt into it that you understand, at least I do, or I feel I do, that, um, that why having done, gone down that path, you know, he then gets this traumatic experience and, and he just has in essence a psychotic break and, and just does this incredible about face where he, uh, goes from being, you know, Mr. Milk Toast to, to, you know, a guy who thinks he can literally conquer the world. So, um, in in a moment, and um, it's a very effective moment for me. Yeah, I, I think so. I know there was a lot of confusion on the internet at the time. Like people thought, did he have a split personality? What's going on? I mean, granted, I a lot of people, most people, I think, missed that scene where he's fantasizing about impaling Norman Osborn on the end of one of his tentacles. So I think that rage has been there since the beginning uh yeah you know i mean we tried to plant all the seeds and and give some indication of where it was coming from um but i think you know it still comes down to trauma you know he's been heavily traumatized despite doing everything he was told so from now on he's not going to do everything he's told and you know he makes some mistakes he assumes spider-man's an enemy right out of the gate um because he 
you know, Octavius had been worried that Spider-Man would track him down. So when Spider-Man shows up, he assumes Spider-Man is attacking him. Um, but, uh, you know, he, he doesn't lose suddenly his distaste for Osborne. It, it's not like um, he doesn't remember what's taken place before. This isn't like a multiple personality disorder sort of thing. This is a guy who's had a psychotic break. You know, and it works for people or it doesn't. I mean, in hindsight, I think the episode works really well. I remember at the time on the Internet, there were a lot of people who were sort of thrown by it. But um, it worked for me. Well, it still does. It works for, it works for me, I think. And see, without, without naming anyone, I think we've all had bosses that kind of made us a little bit crazy. <laughs> uh, and also, seeing, seeing that character in other episodes, I think, helps uh, kind of maybe change a bit of the perception of... of what people were thinking at the time as it was coming out. Because I think, I think you really see that this is truly Dr. Octopus. I mean, there's a reason that, that, that uh, Greg chose the line in the uh, opening theme that, uh, you know, call me Dr. Octopus. Because, I mean, that, that just is classic, classic Doc Ock. I mean, you can't get, you can't get more Stan Lee-like than that. <laughs> classic megalomania. Yeah. I mean, he's just maybe a couple steps away from Dr. Doom at times. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, with all the changes that, that have occurred over the last several months, you your relationship with Marvel was, was different when you were working with Sony and stuff, and now that there's a little bit more of that relationship, this is kind of a veer-off topic, I meant to cover this at the beginning of the episode, but... But there's a supposedly an animated film that's coming out in 2018, Greg. I don't know if you heard about yeah. that. Yeah, it's being made by Sony. Being made by Sony, and and has anybody called you yet? Just out of curiosity. No, I mean that'd be wonderful. I'd love to do it, obviously, but uh, I have not been contacted to do it. Um, and uh, you know, nothing would please me more. I think we'd have a great time reassembling the the old team and the voice actors would all love to do it. Uh, yeah. It, it would be a lot of fun, but no, no one's called me. I haven't been, I don't even know if I'm, uh, yeah. well, <laughs> I tend to think I'm not well, considered for that, frankly, because I think if they, they know where to find me, if they wanted me, they sure could. Well, maybe the stars will align. Yeah. Well, maybe the stars will align. Maybe they'll want something direct to DVD or, who knows? I mean, I wish we'll think of it on my part, but it seems like the situation has definitely changed since 2009. Yeah. Well, definitely Marvel and Sony have uh, come to terms, at least on some things. They were, they tended to be more at war with each other back in our day, but uh, obviously they've reached some more of a detente, which is good, you know, good yeah. thing. I mean, Joss Whedon has said that he had planned to put Spider-Man in at the end of Age of Ultron, but the deal wasn't quite in place yet, and then in February they finally finalized it after he had locked the film. And I guess on that note, again off-topic, but what did you think of Age of Ultron? Uh, I enjoyed it. Look, I, Marvel has this amazing track record with their live-action feature films, starting with the first Iron Man film. Um, you know, I've liked some better than others, of course, Uh but uh, there isn't one I haven't been entertained by mm -hmm. um, from that point on. Uh, you know, and uh, obviously, I, I mean, it's well-established. I'm a huge Joss Whedon fan. 
and this had a lot of great stuff in it, you know. Um, and so I enjoyed it, you know, terrific performances from all the actors and um, probably would have liked to have seen more Falcon in it, but they had a good amount of Falcon. I mean, you know, not much, but enough that I didn't feel like he was completely, uh, didn't exist in the universe, is, I believe. Is, so. is Falcon your favorite Avenger? I don't have a single favorite Avenger, um, but uh, I just really liked Falcon in the last Captain America movie and was okay. kind of hoping to have a little more of him in this one. It seemed to make sense to me that he would be in it, but I liked the rationale they presented, um, and I you know, I don't want to spoil things for people who may not have seen it yet in your audience, but uh, uh, you know, the way they did use the character... Um, at least, you know, partially satisfied me. Um, and and it's just personal preference. I just really like the character, so I'd like to see more of them. But they set it up for more later, which is good. Um, yeah. And so I was psyched about that. And um, likewise, uh, War Machine. And um, it, it was just nice to see them starting to bring some diversity in there, um, which is something I give a damn about. Um, Agreed. And to do it. I, don't, I don't know that there was that much in the movie <laughs> diversity wise, but at least they set it up so that there'll be diversity down the road. Um, yeah. and that was great. And James Spader is amazing, of course, which is not exactly shocking. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and everyone was really good. You know, they, they really, have in a comfortable place with those characters. Scarlett Johansson was fantastic. Um, I don't know if they've got a Black Widow movie on their slate. But not yet. That's been a... I can't fathom why they don't. She's so great in, you know, in every movie. She's been in like four of their movies, and she's great in every one of them. And she's actually, you know, one of the few female box office stars that they can kind of count on. Yeah. I think they go for it. I don't know what they're waiting for. but My wife uh, absolutely loves Black Widow and has a girly crush on Scarlett Johansson. So... You know, it, yeah, she's awesome. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I got, I got no complaints. I, I really, you know, I'm a big geek, so I know I'm supposed to have all this stuff to complain about in the movie, and I really don't. Um, uh, I just enjoyed the hell out of it. Yeah, I'll admit I walked out of it with some complaints, but as the but as I processed it over the last couple of days, those complaints faded. I think at the time I I didn't think it was quite as good as the first one, but now I'm well over that and I'm enjoying it for what it is. I'm planning on going to see it a second time pretty soon. This will definitely warrant multiple showings on my end. So yeah, um, back to the episode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, back to the episode. Uh, okay, Mister Twaki, Doctor Twaki. Uh, bringing that character, wow, what an obscure character. I know who he is, Greg knows who he is, but, you know, some people might think that they're watching this for the first time, they might not know that he's an established Marvel character from an era that is not well-beloved in, in fandom. Uh, I'm, actually, yeah, I'm actually somewhat involved with this particular behind-the-scenes story. Greg, tell us a little bit more about that, then. Uh, Pashansky. It's Greg. <laughs> uh, yeah. Pashansky, me, I'm sorry. 
I remember at the time you said that Marvel was slow getting new references, and you emailed me asking me for a picture of Doctor Tw- of no, you asked me, you know, you emailed me asking for information on Tricorp. You know, are they good guys, bad guys, or what? And that was in an era that I knew pretty well. Well, I had dropped the comic briefly at that point, and uh, I had to do some own, some own research. And at first, I couldn't find my collection, so I remember looking through um, some online resources, and I just found names, no pictures, to the point where we got the gender confused on one character, as I remember, when I wrote, sent you my email. Hey, it was uh, yeah. Dr. Lee, I think, is what, what you told me, Greg. I may have Honestly, been, your memory's been, probably better than mine. I mean, uh, it's I... Been several years, yeah, it's been several years, and then you have to re-record the name to be Dr. Twaki and the... Uh, yeah. But I, I just... Greg, I got to give you mad props, my friend, because <laughs> I was like, "Wow!" When well, I, I mean, again, this isn't news to your audience because we've talked about this before. But we made a decision um, early on um, that we were that we were only going to use named characters from one from Spider-Man continuity, you know. Uh, and you know, we had a lot of continuity to choose from. You could go from the Ultimate Spider-Man. You could go from Untold Tales of Spider-Man. You could go from obviously the main book. You could go from the movies, um, from old TV shows if we wanted to. I mean, we were pretty liberal about what we included, but you know, we weren't going to create a main character um, of our own. That was something that we determined, um, and we stuck to it. So you know, and the truth is, is that you've got, you know decades of Spider-Man material, the odds are the writers, editors, artists who've worked on Spidey over those years have pretty much covered anything I would have needed. So why create some random corporation and some new scientist when we could use something that existed in the continuity? And, you know, it might wind up paying off for us later. We didn't end up using Dr. Twocky again. Um, but, you know, in later seasons, we might have. Uh, and it's just much more fun. You know, why, I mean, even for our football co- coach, why uh, create an original football coach when we got Coach Smith from the comics back when Ditko was drawing him? Um, and when you got those characters existing, it, to me, it, it almost felt like uh, the height of arrogance to consider creating an original character when we had all these uh, existing characters that could fill those bills and, and how much more fun. Would, I mean, you know, for a new audience, they don't know who Dr. Twocky is. And to some extent, it doesn't matter. They don't need to know that he came from the comic. They, as long as they understand within the episode what his role is as Octavius's former employer, um, then that's all they need to know. But for, you know, hardcore fanboy, they get Dr. Twocky and they have that moment where it's like, this is cool. It's that guy from the comic way back when I remember, you know, and yeah. why not do that? <laughs> oh, very few comic fans, even the hardcore ones remember Dr. Twocky, but it's still awesome. Uh, I'll tell you what, this is my favorite Tricorp story of all time. <laughs> I'll agree <laughs> to that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, like I say, I, I was very pleased Whenever I, whenever I saw that for the first time, watching it live, you know, as it came out, I was like, that's awesome. So. Yeah, one question was, Tricorp your first choice? I remember 
there was talk back in the day that Stark Industries was your first choice, but you couldn't use them because of the embargo on everything non-Spidey? Uh, like I said, your memory may be better than mine. I mean, there's no doubt that we had uh, often sort of pitched the notion of, of, of at least uh, in some way attaching it to the larger Marvel Universe. I know we've talked about the fact that we wanted to do a Human Torch uh, Spidey team-up, um, and there were other stories we wanted to do. And so obviously using Stark Industries seemed like a cool idea can't specifically remember if that was tied to this episode, although that makes sense. Um, and, yeah, the answer at the time was just no. I mean, like I said, uh, I, I'm not blaming Marvel, I'm not blaming Sony, I'm just saying at the time the two companies were not getting along well, despite the fact that they shared this billion-dollar franchise in Spider-Man um, that was making both companies a lot of money. They're, they were not happy with each other, and so, um, you know, we weren't able to use anything outside of the Spider-Man universe, up to and including Kingpin, who, you know, was created in the Spider-Man books. Um, but, you know, we tried to turn a negative into a positive in the sense that, all right, fine, we've still got this huge Spider-Man universe to choose from, to pull from, so wind up with Tricorp. And it was great. This is also the first time that we see Mary Jane and Gwen interact, and it was really cool to see them come together, because they're both Spidey's, two, Peter Parker's two greatest love interests in the book, in the book, in the mythos. I believe we said before, Gwen was his first love, MJ was his great love. And it's also nice, when you bring them together, to see that you're one of the few adaptations of this property that hasn't role-reversed them. Well, I mean, I agree with that. Uh, I think that uh, I think that the Gwen in the in I didn't see the very last Spider-Man movie, but in the the first of the Andrew Garfield movies, I think Emma Stone's Gwen is pretty Gwenish. Um, but up to that point, certainly if we're talking about the three movies that preceded it. They there was a lot of role reversal in the in the uh, Gwen Peter Mary Jane dynamic. Some of that comes out of Ultimate Spider-Man, I think, which sort of put Gwen in that, I mean, I'm sorry, put Mary Jane in that uh, yeah. role uh, to a certain extent. So I think it was a natural evolution. But to me, you know, I'm, I mean, I'm old school. So to me, you know, you've got the cool blonde and the fiery redhead. And, um, and that's, those are the characters that came out of uh, Stan and Steve and then uh, Stan and Johnny. Um, and that's what we were trying to do. You know, I, I don't think that Gwen and Mary Jane have a lot of interaction in this episode. What you see is Gwen falls down during the attack by Dr. Octopus, and Harry, who's supposed to be one of her best friends, just jumps over her to get out of the way and leaves her lying on the ground. And it's Mary Jane who runs over and helps her to her feet, um, despite the danger, which is, I, I agree, a nice moment, but you're not actually seeing the friendship bloom here. Um, I guess you're right. I uh, but, you know, there's some great stuff with Mary Jane and Flash and Liz and Pete in this episode, and likewise some great stuff with Gwen and Pete and Harry 
Gwen gives Pete the look. Um, uh, the look. Which was designed by Jennifer Coyle. I'm trying to remember. Is this the first time we've actually seen the look? Um, yes. yes. Yeah. Mentioned we've talked now about it before, but I feel like this was the first time she actually trotted it out and used it on Peter. Is that right, or am I forgetting? Yeah, I think so. I think this. I think Greg's right. This was it the is. first time we saw it. it. It was mentioned like two or three times, but right. Actually so she gives him the look, which was designed by Jennifer Coyle, who also directed the episode, um, and it works. You know, it's so perfect. We've been talking about this look and threatening it. Of course, the the risk of doing that is that when you actually see the look, you're like, "That's the look. That's it. That's all it is." Um, and I feel like no, it really works here. Um, who was the basis for the look? What? Who was the basis for the look? Like, who who was modeled? Like, who came up with the look? Was it Jennifer herself? Or Jennifer, Jennifer designed it, yeah. Okay. I mean, she literally drew the facial expression um, that we had for it. Okay. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, Jennifer was a tremendous resource, uh, uh, you know, Still able to handle all the action, um, but also a great sort of feminine voice on the show that, uh, frankly, we didn't have a lot of. Um, we had uh, writer Nicole Dubuque and we had Jennifer and um, uh, a few other people, but it was a, a pretty masculine, heavy crew, so it was great to get that alternative voice in there. Um, the episode was written by Randy Jant, who was also the writer assistant for the entire series. This was his first script on the show. I thought it came out real great. There's some great uh, Spidey Doc interaction there. Some stuff that to me is just so perfect. Like when Doc Ock is slamming Spidey around, saying "glib" does not equate with clever, or something like that. Yes. And won't you ever shut up? And then Spidey says, "No, my fans expect a certain amount of quippage in every battle," which on one level is very meta. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but on another level, you can totally buy a guy like Spidey saying that, that there's a little bit meta about Spidey, that he's a trickster, and there's this little feeling like, wait, is he winking to the audience or not? I'm not sure, because he's wearing a mask, but maybe, you know, um, and... Yeah, it's breaking the fourth wall with actually not breaking the fourth wall, you know what I'm saying? Right, and I've done shows where we flat out broke the fourth wall, um, particularly with trickster characters, but... Uh, but this one we didn't have to we could play that ambiguity of whether he is or not and it just works out beautifully um, and a lot of great dialogue exchanges there um, I even love these little exchanges Spidey has with uh, Dr. Twocky. Um and then it's over and Spidey goes okay you should hide now um, <laughs> and uh so, you know, a lot of great stuff. And, again, as usual, you know, Spidey can hold his own physically, but, you know, when he finally wins, he wins by being smart. Yeah. I, and to me, that's, you know, that's Peter Parker. That's who Spider-Man is. Agreed. And I, I think I'll say this for every episode, but Josh's performance was spot on and great. It always is. <laughs> it feels like old hat at this point to say that, but I just feel like it needs to be said more often because it's... <laughs> Because even though Christopher Daniel Barnes was my childhood Spidey, um, Josh Keaton quickly replaced him as my favorite. Uh, Josh is just, you know, so great. I mean, so great, period. Yeah. But particularly at that role, you know, he's, he's just, you know, 
he was our he was our lead without a doubt. And there are lots Perfect. of great moments. I love his moment with Flash, where he uh, basically tells Flash, you know, you're not pretty enough to rescue twice. You know, um, <laughs> and Flash is like, no, I know, thanks, buddy. <laughs> and Dasha um, Bar is also just so great as Flash. Um, and there are lots of great little moments there. We've got the, a couple of seemingly random, they're setting up stuff for later episodes, the seemingly random uh, Jonah moments in there uh, as his son heads off into space. We, we're setting up some Ned Lee stuff, some of which we didn't, we weren't planning to pay off until season three, which of course never happened. But, um, uh, you know, we just had a lot, of, we had a couple of those great Daily Bugle moments that uh, also sort of played out and uh, had some uh, great stuff. I love when Jonah starts dancing with Betty and then, you know, <laughs> uses her of coming on to him, you know. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it's, it's, the whole show was so much fun. Our whole cast was so much fun, both the cast of characters and the cast of actors who played them. So, you know, we can bring John DiMaggio in to have, like, well, four or five lines as Hammerhead at the end because that character is so, uh, in essence, for lack of a better term, welcoming, you know, that, that that we can just bring some guy who hasn't been in the episode at all in for a short scene um, because, uh, you know, our we've just created this ensemble feel to the program that, that works really well. I felt like there was a very good energy, and this goes back to Jennifer's direction, I think, too, to the episode, the tempo and the pacing. I think we're all at a, at a steady clip. There wasn't any type of anything dragging it down. Everything was just moving forward, and it was kind of like a high-speed chase, and then you're like, then you get to the end of the episode, and you're like, wow, that was, we're already, we're already done? Really? <laughs> I mean, it was just, there was a lot that happened, but you, you just got so completely engrossed with Ox. The tragic tale of Doctor Octopus. I think that that's that there was a tragedy to, to the uh, characterization of Doc in this episode that really just was y'all knocked it out of the park. Yeah, I mean, uh, again, I give a lot of credit to Peter McNichol for his performance as Oct for making you really feel for the guy, uh, despite the fact that he's you know running around like a megalomaniac. It's what we knew about him that makes you care about him, um, and. Uh, and yeah, you know, as always with our shows, we, we tried to just jam pack them, we tried to put everything up on screen. So you've also got, you know, and Gwen says it, you know, it's like despite the, the soap opera and the super villain, and the super villain. Got, huh. yeah, you know, uh, she's still worried about Harry. So we, you know, advance the Harry subplot and we advance the flash, uh, Liz breakup and and the Liz Peter relationship and um, and you get Gwen's look and you get uh, Harry's addiction and you get all this stuff in here you know we see Harry score the touchdown pass and uh, and we see uh, Mary Jane who you know at this stage doesn't go to the school yet but had just been at prom with Peter and now suddenly she's trying to hang out with these guys. Um, and so we advanced her story, and that was the idea. Is that you know one of the advantages of, of sort of building the whole season in advance is that we could see where we were going, knew what we wanted to do, and it allowed us to make 
small advances on every story uh, as we went along. Yeah, what you said about MJ, it does remind me of some of the reactions this episode got when it first aired. Some people who I don't think were familiar with the comics and just knew the 90s show and the movies were shocked that MJ wasn't immediately his love interest. Yeah, and, you know, two things going on there. One is that, yeah, we're we're basing it way more on the original 60s comic. But also, um, my original pitch on the show from day one was... Peter Parker is 16 years old and is madly, passionately in love with whatever girl happens to be standing in front of him at any given moment. And so, you know, when he's with Liz, he's really into Liz. And when he's with MJ, he's really into MJ. And um, the one girl he sort of takes for granted um, is Gwen. But the truth is, is when he's with Gwen, he's less aware of it, but he's very present with Gwen. I mean, we don't see it so much in this episode. But, for example, when he's on the bus with her uh, in the uh, Sandman episode that we talked about before, he's very much present with her. Um, And that's one of, you know, the saving graces of Peter is that he's very distractible on the one hand. But on the other hand, he cares about people. And when he is with somebody, he is present in that moment as much as possible, given his sort of... Um, and but you know we're able to have uh, some extent our cake and eat it too you know in that Peter isn't sort of locking down on one girl because you know he's 16 years old and there are a lot of pretty girls out there mm-hmm. yeah this episode and one day I hope we can chat with Jennifer Coyle too, but this episode has a lot of little touches in it, as most of our episodes do. I like the photographs on Ox Wall. There's a, one photograph where Adrian Toomes is standing behind Otto giving him bunny ears, and that's just that. It's a little thing, but it adds a lot of depth and history to the relationship. Yeah, I mean, it was one of the things we decided from day one, again, from episode one, is that um, Vulture, and Vulture's a little bit older, but Vulture and uh, Adrian and Otto are contemporaries and they're friends, so that, you know, as particularly into season two, as, as uh, uh, Doc Ock develops as a character and as a leader of men, so to speak, you know, it, you know, Vulture becomes his right hand man, becomes his consigliere, you know. Um, Hammerhead is to Big Man, the tombstone, um, Vulture becomes to, uh, uh, Doc Ock, and you know, part of that was again trying to make the characters real and trying to make the relationships real, so that you know we had a, a real consistency throughout. But we see that uh, Adrian and Otto are, are friends, even though Adrian's mad at him in the first episode. And as we build through this, you see that oh wait, they're, they had a picture together that's sort of a fun, funky picture on the wall, and. And so obviously that was a real relationship, and then that'll continue to play out as we go forward, particularly in episode 11 of this season, and the gang war stuff in season two. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Greg brings it up. I, the the especially when I when I go back and, and all the beauty of hindsight, you look back and all this stuff you guys build just really really play. I think it plays so well in this format. Like, I'm watching it in the, in the 
Blu-ray format, and I'm like, man, this watches really well. And I know you guys meant to do that just because it was supposed to be a direct-to-DVD movie, but direct-to-DVD, but, but still, I, I got to give you guys props. Uh, and I, do, I know I do this maybe every other episode, but just setting everything up and having so much depth to it. Because, I mean, there's, this is truly an art form, and, and, and you can really appreciate it when you watch shows such as this. So, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, it, I'm, about, I'm about to be a parent. My, my wife is due in two and a half weeks from this recording. Wow. So, yeah, I, uh, thank you. Um, so, you know, I can't wait to show my little girl this, this version of Spider-Man when she gets old enough. So, I mean, it's, it's definitely, uh, I'm definitely starting her off on the good stuff. I I gave this version of Spidey to my niece and she just turned three the other day. (laughs) Yeah, so it's, it's good stuff. (laughs) So. It's great stuff. Greg, uh, you got any more for Mr. Wiseman? I think we're. I think I'm good. You think you're good? Okay, so, uh, Mr. Wiseman, you've got some. Okay, are you? Did I hear a rumor you're writing some comics now, Mr. Greg? From our. Uh, yeah, I, I'm writing uh, Star Wars Canaan. Um, we're doing our first arc, The Last Padawan. Um, or Canaan, The Last Padawan, I guess you'd call it. Uh, the first issue came out last month. Um, I'm not sure when this episode's going up for everyone to hear, but as of when we're recording it today, issue two comes out tomorrow, which is uh, Wednesday, May 6th. So if you're hearing this after May 6th, then issue two is already out. Uh, it's a five-issue arc, and then I'm working on the second arc for the book now. Um, and uh, the artwork is by Pepe Loras and uh, David Curiel. Uh, the artwork is so gorgeous that I could write a shopping list and you'd still want to pick up this book. Uh, and uh, but it's a great story I think um, an important story in Kanan's history his backstory uh, if you're a fan of Star Wars Rebels or Star Wars in general particularly the Clone Wars um, this is a great uh, five issue story about uh, how Caleb survived the Clone Wars basically and how he survived Caleb being Kanan's real name Caleb uh, survived Order 66. So, uh, you know, if you haven't seen Rebels, I think the series still works on its own terms. Um, but obviously, if you have seen Rebels and you like Kanan already, definitely going to want to pick up this, uh, this book. Well, I'll pick it up as soon as I can. Yeah, I, I, I will pick it up digitally probably soon. <laughs> And, and hey, they gave you the second arc also. Last I heard, it was just, just the first five issues. Uh, it was originally, and then they uh, gave me the call uh, just a few weeks ago saying, hey, would you like to do the next arc as well? I said, yes, definitely. <laughs> um, and I'm very psyched about that. So I uh, literally just earlier this week turned in my proposal for what the second arc would be. Um, haven't heard back yet. They wind up being very different for all I know, but... Uh, um, I'm very excited about the second arc as well. I finished writing the first arc. I'm done with that. So we'll just see what will happen with the second arc. Now, is that the only Marvel work you're doing right now? Yeah. Okay. And I know you've got some books to plug. Well, we kind of did that at the beginning of the show. So, yeah, um, my novel's Reign of the Ghosts, 
and the Spirits of Ash and Foam are both out and available now. Um, you can get them on Amazon. You can get them at any bookstore. They're not literally on the shelf the day you happen to walk in. Uh, you can go to the front desk and order them. Um, and uh, the audio play of Reign of the Ghosts uh, will be available um, uh, sometime uh, in the fall. Uh, we're shooting for September, uh, and I think we should be able to make that. But, uh, you know, I think October at the latest, probably. Um, that'll be available on Amazon as well, on ACX. And, um, and so, you know, I'm really looking forward to finishing that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm otherwise, for... I'm looking for work right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I'm looking for the most part and looking for work. So. Um, nothing uh, else on the horizon? Not right now. Uh, you know, I'm hoping to scare something up, but... Uh, I got uh, caught off guard recently. Some of, if you follow me on Twitter, at Greg underscore Weissman, you probably know that uh, I was working on a show. I can't say what it is. Uh, it would have been really, really cool, but the whole show was killed a couple weeks ago. Uh. And, and so uh, that really caught us all of us here off guard. And uh, so now we're all sort of scrambling to find our next gig. Um, but that happens in this business. So. Uh, now, Bashansky is uh, is Rebels season one available on DVD yet, or is it? I don't think it is. I know the pilot movie is, but okay. I didn't. But I, I didn't know if, if you knew or. I don't. I don't think so. I'll buy it when it comes out, but yeah, I don't think it is currently. I, I've caught a few episodes. I haven't been able to get it religiously. Yeah, <laughs> but every episode I've seen has been good. So yeah, well. One thing, I was happy to make a donation to your Kickstarter, and I look forward to my Vanessa Marshall voicemail. <laughs> <laughs> I like that woman. <laughs> yeah, she, hey, you know, when she recorded a, a opening line for the show for us, just, just on a whim, we didn't even request it or anything, she just did it, and I was like, that's, and Greg sent it to me, I was like, this is like Christmas or something, so, uh, or my birthday, or Vanessa's <laughs> pretty great. Yeah, she's pretty awesome. Yeah, she is. And so are you, Greg, for for being with us yeah. all, all these months and, and all these episodes. We really do appreciate your insight. Yeah. And giving us yeah, your thank insight. You. Yeah, it's always uh, always a pleasure to have you on and a pleasure to. to a ple- A pleasure and an honor. Yes. Absolutely. Well, I'm happy to do it. Is there any? Is there anything else? No, I'm no, think... I'm tapped out. You're tapped. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, so that's our show. Yep, we'll see you next time here on Spectacular Radio. I'd like to be under the sea in an octopus's garden in the shade. Let us in Knows where we've been In his octopus's garden In the shade I'd ask my friends To come and see An octopus's garden with me I'd like to be Under the sea In an octopus's garden In the shade 
the storm In our little hideaway beneath the waves Resting our head on the seabed In an octopus's garden near a cave Fans expect a certain amount of quippage in every battle. 